0: Texas will gain two new congressional seats because of its population growth, almost all of which is due to growth in the state's minority population. However, Texas has designed both of those new seats to have white voting majorities. The congressional plan also deliberately reconfigured a West Texas district to eliminate the opportunity for Latino voters to elect a representative of their choice. Hmm. This is the third time in three decades where Texas has eliminated a Latino electoral opportunity in this same district, despite previous court determinations that this violates the law.
1: What? Violating the law in Texas, you don't say?
0: Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I
2: got the feeling that something right. No I'm so scared in
1: case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. 12 to the left me, jokers to the right, here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast that's heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, in Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you on the internets. You're welcome on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdon Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all of your favorite podcast sites, and many others too long to list. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly, investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all around swell fellow, says me, from BradBlog.com. Thank you for joining us today for another thrilling edition of the Bradcast. As, um, Boy, as it continues to be the the case uh, these days, every single day, and I mean everything, everything is just continuing to happen all at once. It is getting more and more difficult. It is not getting easier to sort of pick and choose what we need to focus on each day, what you need to know about, what matters most.
2: I know. It's like you need to know all of it, but that's not possible, yeah. so we'll try to pick and choose. Yeah.
1: There, There's a lot suddenly going on foreign policy-wise. Hi, Desi Doyan.
2: Sorry. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yes, oh, there's you, a world out there and stuff yes, is also happening
1: is. out there. Well, uh, it, it, there is, and it is beginning to drag the U.S. into it with uh, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin holding a two-hour teleconference on Tuesday as Russia continues its buildup of forces near the Ukrainian border which NATO fears could be a precursor to a full-on invasion of Ukraine of the much-disputed former Soviet country in the new year. According to reports, Biden uh, put Moscow on notice that an invasion of Ukraine would bring enormous harm to the Russian economy from both the U.S. and other European nations, while Putin came into the meeting seeking guarantees from Joe Biden that the NATO military alliance would never expand to include Ukraine which has long sought membership in the uh, in the alliance the Americans and NATO allies however said in advance that that request was a non-starter all of which could lead to an even more tense standoff in the weeks and months ahead The uh, U.S., meanwhile, has declared a diplomatic boycott of the upcoming Winter Olympics in Beijing to protest Chinese human rights abuses, a move that China has vowed to greet with, quote, firm countermeasures, whatever that might mean. Speaking to reporters at a daily briefing, China's foreign ministry described the U.S. diplomatic boycott, which would allow U.S. athletes to participate in the Games, uh, they described it as, quote, outright political provocation, but again, gave no details on how China might retaliate. So as sabers are rattling overseas, meanwhile, here at home, the madness, of course, continues as well.
2: <laughs> would we have it any other way? I don't think we can get that. Well,
1: I would love it any other way, to be frank, but that's not what we're getting. That's uh, not the world we, we live in. We told you last week. Uh, After uh, Steve Bannon had been indicted for contempt of Congress by the DOJ, after he failed to answer subpoenas for documents and testimony from the January 6th U.S. House Select Committee that Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, suddenly after seeing Bannon indicted, suddenly Mark Meadows had a change of heart and had decided to cooperate uh, with giving documents and testimony to the committee in response to his own subpoenas there, but uh, that he seemed to be placing some conditions on on that conditions that were unlikely to be agreed with by the committee. Well, today, after news broke over the past 24 hours or so that Mark Meadows has a new book out that uh, outs Donald Trump, Lying about becoming infected with COVID much earlier than previously confirmed and putting Joe Biden in uh, in danger during one of their debates. Well, now suddenly Meadows must be feeling some blowback or something, something because he's had a change of heart and he has decided he will not cooperate after all with the bipartisan House committee on on the uh, January 6th attack, which means that. He also will likely face a contempt citation uh, from the DOJ, which would put him at risk of two years in prison, just like Steve Bannon. But hey, I guess he got a good talking to from, from the boss. So he is apparently now willing to face years in jail to stay on the good side of the disgraced, twice impeached former president. That, unlike Mike Pence's former chief of staff, Mark Short, who it has now been con- confirmed is actually cooperating with the committee and helpfully detailing everything that the vice president did that day, including his conversations with the former president. As that president tried to convince Mike Pence to help him steal the election, by tossing out perfectly valid Electoral College votes on January 6th under Team Trump's interpretation of the Constitution and the archaic, but actually still in effect, Electoral Count Act of 1887, which uh, this week longtime Republican attorney Ben Ginsburg is now calling uh, to be reformed before the Electoral Count Act comes back to bite Republicans themselves Whether in 2024 or beyond, we will be joined momentarily by the person that we spoke with uh, quite a bit before January 6th, last December and then into January on this program, uh, who had been warning at the time about how the ECA, the Electoral Count Act, and the Constitution could be abused by Republicans on January 6th, that back when very few were paying attention to those concerns. Even as we were. Uh, But first, I I had to sort of give this short shrift yesterday for lack of time. It had just broken before airtime. But uh, as we have been very critical and continue to be critical of U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland on this program for failing to bring accountability, at least so far, for Donald Trump and his criminal crew, uh, for all manner of things, I I do want to be sure to give proper credit to the DOJ at least when and where it is due. And to that end, so uh, last week uh, on on our broadcast, we spoke with the University of Kentucky election law expert Josh Douglas about his recent op ed explaining how state courts are now needed to be used in the fight against the wave of extreme partisan gerrymandering now happening in Republican-controlled states after the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018 had ruled that federal courts must stay out of partisan redistricting matters, uh, leaving it to the state courts to deal with. Good luck to you, state courts. We're out of here. As Douglas noted when we spoke with him uh, last week, uh, cases on the state level might actually be easier to bring in in some sense uh, in lieu of federal legislation like the Freedom to Vote Act that would ban partisan gerrymandering in all 50 states because at the state level, state constitutions often have much clearer provisions regarding the right to vote than actually exist in the U.S. Constitution. But those are questions of partisan redistricting, specifically uh, you know, packing and cracking congressional and, and state legislative districts for a specific partisan advantage. Well, that's what the Supreme Court said that they wanted nothing to do with. On the other hand, the court does have a history of findings regarding racial gerrymandering, being opposed to it, if you're wondering, as a specific violation of the Voting Rights Act, at least the part of of the act that is still standing that the Supremes have not yet gutted. Well, as I noted back in October, uh, Mother Jones voting rights champion Ari Berman uh, reported the breaking news in October, quote, the Texas legislature passed extreme gerrymandered U.S. House maps where whites who comprise about 40 percent of the state's population would control 60 percent of the districts. Latinos who comprise 39 percent of the population would have majority control in just 18 percent of the districts. And blacks who make up 12 percent of the population in Texas would enjoy majority control in Zero percent of the districts that even though Texas will be adding two new congressional districts this year, thanks to their population growth, which is almost entirely responsible to growth in the Latino and black populations. Uh, And and this with a lot of other gerrymandering going on in a lot of other GOP states that would result in. In 2022, if folks voted exactly as they did in 2020, when they voted for uh, more than almost five million more voters voted for Democratic House candidates than Republicans, Republican ones, even if we all voted that same way in 2022 with these gerrymanders in place, Republicans would take control of the U.S. House uh, and with it. Well, we'll talk about what they might do in 2024. Well, on Monday, the DOJ filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging Texas's Republican plans for redrawing congressional and state legislative districts um, based on the new 2020 census figures. Merrick Garland at a press conference on Monday announcing that said the new state maps violate the uh, Voting Rights Act by, quote, denying or abridging the rights of Latino and black voters. The new maps, the department charges are drawn to increase the already considerable voting power of white voters in the Lone Star State, where maps have already been gamed for years and where and where they were drawn with discriminatory intent in a rushed process with a, quote, overall disregard for the fact that Texas's population growth was driven almost entirely by black and Hispanic residents. Uh, This was all explained by Associate Attorney General Vanita Gupta on Monday.
0: Our complaint today alleges that the redistricting plans approved by the Texas state legislature and signed into law by the governor will deny Black and Latino voters an equal opportunity to participate in the voting process and to elect representatives of their choice in violation of the Voting Rights Act. Our complaint also alleges that several of those districts were drawn with discriminatory intent. Texas's population grew by four million people from 2010 to 2020 and 95% of that growth came from minority populations. Despite this significant increase in the number and proportion of eligible Latino and black voters in Texas, the newly enacted redistricting plans will not allow minority voters an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. Instead, Our investigation determined that Texas's redistricting plans will dilute the increased minority voting strength that should have developed from these significant demographic shifts. For example, Texas will gain two new congressional seats because of its population growth, almost all of which is due to growth in the state's minority population. However, Texas has designed both of those new seats to have white voting majorities. The Congressional Plan also deliberately reconfigured a West Texas district to eliminate the opportunity for Latino voters to elect a representative of their choice. This is the third time in three decades where Texas has eliminated a Latino electoral opportunity in this same district, despite previous court determinations that this violates the law. And the State House Plan eliminated Latino electoral opportunities by manipulating or eliminating districts where Latino communities previously had elected their preferred candidates. These redistricting plans will diminish the opportunities for Latino and Black voters in Texas to elect their preferred representatives. And that is prohibited by federal law.
1: Well, let's hope the Supreme Court still feels that way. Yes, 95% of the population growth due to Black and Hispanic voters. And yet two seats were added uh, in, in white majority districts and one district was taken away from Latino voters. The announcement marks the DOJ's first major legal action on redistricting at a time when Democrats have warned that GOP controlled state legislatures are improperly redrawing voting precincts to a- to aid Republican candidates. Ahead of the 2022 midterms and the 24 presidential election. The suit notes, as, as Go- Gupta did as well, a quote This is not the first time that Texas has acted to minimize the voting rights of its minority citizens decade after decade. Texas has enacted redistricting plans that violate the Voting Rights Act, the DOJ said in their lawsuit. In enacting its 2021 congressional and House plans, the state has again Diluted the voting strength of minority Texans. Of course, when they did it in the past, the Voting Rights Act hadn't been quite as gutted and they were pushed back. Whether that will be the case this time, that remains to be seen. The maps have also drawn two legal challenges from outside advocacy groups as well. Garland's decision. To pursue litigation here comes just weeks after the DOJ also sued Texas over their separate SB1 law that federal officials say would disenfranchise eligible voters, including older Americans and people with disabilities. It would ban 24 hour and drive through voting. It would also make it harder to assist voters with disabilities or without English proficiency, according to the DOJ. Throughout the year, Garland has been urging Congress to pass new voting legislation to block these vote suppression efforts. He has been vowing to use existing legislation to fight these abuses wherever the federal government believes they can do so, but he has asked for new legislation. And uh, well, now we see another example of that with hopefully much more to come from Garland and hopefully the realization that much of this revitalized Jim Crow vote suppression that is being implemented around the country could be stopped entirely if Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema came to their senses about what is going on. Before all of our very eyes and they agree to change the uh, filibuster in order to pass the Freedom to Vote Act that would ban partisan gerrymandering nationwide and it would ban many of the other schemes that are now being enacted by Republicans to suppress the vote in 22 and 24 and beyond but uh, in hopes of winning a House majority that they could use to try to steal the 24 election. Garland seems to get that part. Why he doesn't understand that letting Trump and his clan get away, get off scot-free after trying to steal the 2020 election, uh, and is quickly making things worse, uh, not better, in advance of 2024, well, that beats me. I'd like to think that Garland actually is investigating and considering bringing charges, but if he is... The department is showing no signs of it. So what can be done if Garland won't in order to help avoid a deja vu all over again in 2024? Except this time, one that Republicans have had much more time to prepare for. We're joined by one of the folks uh, we had on this show before the January 6 attack on the U.S. Capitol when he and we were trying to warn about pretty much exactly what ended up playing out when the nation was a heartbeat away from an all out coup and a constitutional crisis like we have never seen Uh, You know, had Congress uh, under the Constitution and existing incredibly poorly written laws like the Electoral Count Act of 1887 decided that they did not know who actually won in 2020, which, boy, would that have been a nightmare, a nightmare that we may see In the next few years, now at least one Republican attorney is calling for reform to that 130 year old Electoral Count Act before it comes back to bite the nation. And yes, even Republicans. Election law expert Paul Leto joins us next to explain on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. But if you close your eyes, does it almost feel like nothing changed at all? Yeah. if you close your eyes, it does. does it almost feel like you've yeah. been here before? It does feel like we've been here before. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Much of the nation now knows what we had tried on this program to warn about very loudly following the November 3rd presidential election last year, as Donald Trump tried every method that he could, pretty much, to. Steal the 2020 election from Joe Biden all the way up to at least January 6th, which, as you'll recall, exploded in an attack at the U.S. Capitol during a normally pro forma joint session of Congress when the vice president, according to the Constitution, reads the final slate of electors sent by states to Congress, and those electors are confirmed by Congress as the final step before inauguration of the president on January 20th. While the bulk of the media after Election Day were sort of focused at the time on who Joe Biden might select for his cabinet and other appointments and otherwise dismissing the impact of often frivolous, largely evidence-free challenges filed by Team Trump to election results in key battleground states. Trump supporters were very busy gaming out how they could steal the election in plain sight, arguably lawfully or at least constitutionally. On January 6th, the plan would include a controversial interpretation of the exceedingly confusing and poorly written Electoral Count Act of 1887, as well as constitutional clauses that, as the Trumpers argued, uh, but Mike Pence ultimately rejected, gave outsized power for the vice president to essentially declare on his own accord that slates of electors certified and sent to Congress by the states were, for some reason, in doubt. And the entire matter of who actually won the Electoral College would then have to be sent to the House of Representatives to be decided by a majority of state delegations who would receive one vote per state based on which party held the majority of the delegations in each state. At the time, that would have left Republicans in control to decide who the next president would be. It was complicated, and to many, it seemed insane at the time. But sure enough, as we had warned, that is exactly what Team Trump was gunning for. As has since been confirmed by the so-called Eastman memos, which spelled out the strategy that, to his credit, I believe, Mike Pence ultimately rejected, leading then, as you know, to the U.S. Capitol insurrection on January 6. It could have very easily gone a different way. Based on the whims of the then vice president, who had he declared some slates of electors to be illegitimate for virtually any reason he wanted, well, that would have plunged the nation into a nightmarish constitutional crisis. You think we got a nightmare on our hands now? Boy, howdy, uh, would it have been a mess had things gone that way? On January 6, well, little has changed since that bullet was incredibly narrowly averted on January 6. But those who sought to overthrow the 2020 election by these means have been turning their sights to how they may exploit a similar path this time more effectively and with much more time to prepare in 2024. They've adopted laws now in key swing states, making it easier for state legislatures to replace election officials and or simply toss out election results that they do not like for any reason. And as we have warned, they are hoping to win a majority in the U.S. House in 2022 to help them make it easier to execute a maneuver using the Electoral College Act and the Constitution itself to overturn the 2024 presidential results, if needed, all, quote, legally and, quote, constitutionally, even if, in fact, the American people have voted for a different candidate for president. This is apparently of great concern to longtime Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsberg, who was instrumental himself in manipulating both election law and the Constitution on behalf of George W. Bush way back in 2000 when He was able to help get the U.S. Supreme Court itself to essentially steal the election against Al Gore for George W. Bush, stealing it from the American people. Ginsburg has become an opponent of Trump since then and his own party's efforts to claim the 2020 election was stolen. But he is now urging them to join with Democrats to clarify the incredibly poorly written 134 year old Electoral Count Act before 2024. If only to make certain that Democrats don't use it against them in the next presidential election when a Democratic vice president will be overseeing the certification of the Electoral College votes from the states. Ginsburg warns at National Review this week that Republicans in Congress should update the Electoral Count Act before it is too late. The Electoral Count Act, which governs how electoral college votes are tallied, is, as legal experts and critics have long noted, vulnerable to partisan attacks because it is so poorly and confusingly written. On Sunday, Ginsburg argued that the 1887 law's vague wording and application could be bad news for his own party. Republicans, he said, should not deceive themselves by thinking the current state of this law automatically works to their advantage. Writing at the National Review, he says while many of them used it offensively on January 6, 2021, they did so because they were trailing in electoral college votes. Ginsburg argued that the shoe could be soon on the other foot suppose trump runs again and wins now suppose vice president harris believes that trump's re-election represents an existential threat to the country and does what trump couldn't persuade mike pence to do other republicans calling for changes to the eca have used similar arguments Congresswoman Liz Cheney, vice chair of the January 6th House Select Committee, told the New York Times last week that the 1887 Electoral Count Act is directly at issue and that the committee themselves would be recommending changes to the law. In National Review, Ginsburg laid out a series of points that Congress should, quote, define clearly, including the president's role in all of this and whether their threshold for objecting to electors should be increased to more than one member from each chamber. Right now, entire slates of electors from any single state can be challenged with an objection from only one member of the House and one member of the Senate under the ECA. And Ginsburg recommends that grounds for congressional objections to electors should be defined so that only questions of fraud or bribery meet the threshold for an objection And disagreement with the popular vote result does not. Neither Donald Trump nor members of either party can accurately predict what will be to their advantage the next time the ECA becomes crucially relevant. Ginsburg writes, providing clarity would be in the nation's best interest. The time to act is now, he says. Well, while clarity would certainly be in the best interest of the nation, it is not nearly as clear to me that clarity would be in the best interest of Donald Trump or the Republican Party that he has now taken over in full. Confusion and chaos is his stock in trade and uh, an ancient, rarely invoked, never court tested law allowing him and his corrupt minions to interpret as they see fit. And as the situation arises, well, that's likely the preferred path, I would think, for them. But I will give Ginsburg credit for trying, as our current process here seems to be, begging for a constitutional crisis at this point. Joining us again today for the first time in a while is our old friend Paul Leto, uh, who was on this program several times with us between Election Day last year and the January 6th insurrection to try to explain exactly, to try to warn exactly what Republicans at the time were doing when they were in hopes of exploiting that very same confusion and chaos presented by the Electoral College Act's interpretation of the Constitution. Paul Ato is an election law scholar and democracy activist. He publishes encyclopedia articles on election law and election fraud. He's the author of a chapter on Bush v. Gore and has a law degree from Seattle University. In the run-up to Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, Paul's analyses were cited by Politico and, yes, us, right here on the broadcast as we spent much of November and December warning about what Trump and the GOP were trying to do in their efforts to overturn the election results in advance of that deadly attack on the U.S. Capitol. Paul Leto, welcome back to the broadcast, sir.
3: Yes, thank you, Brad. So
1: uh, the last time we had you on the show, according to my notes, was actually January 4th, Paul, uh, in in which you warned that uh, January 6th could result in a political standoff when the vice president was set to preside over the uh, joint session of Congress to affirm the 2020 uh, results. You detailed at the time all of the things that uh, Mike Pence could have done As it turns out, they were all things that we know now that Trump's attorneys, specifically one John Eastman, had outlined in a memo recommending that the vice president do essentially to declare the electoral votes from certain states invalid, toss the entire matter to the U.S. House under the Electoral Count Act, et cetera, et cetera. Had Pence done that at the time, the matter of who would be the next president, Uh, under the ECA and the Constitution would have been based on really whatever the majority of state delegations wanted, correct? It didn't necessarily have to be based on any real, provable, particular evidence of fraud one way or another, correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. I mean, John Quincy Adams, after all, he was elected after losing both the popular vote and the Electoral College, and that has to do with the details of the ECA or the equivalent of the ECA that we're trying to discuss here. So really, the Congress has the ultimate say in in disputes.
1: Now, you say Congress has the ultimate say. Uh, Republicans, as I recall, claim that states and state legislatures have the ultimate say. Their hope was to send the results somehow back to the states for reconsideration. Is that part of the Constitution? Is that part of the Electoral Count Act? Or were they just making things up along the way?
3: That's a fantastic question, because the answer is... That's the independent state legislature doctrine, mm-hmm. which is constitutional in nature. So if we amend the ECA, that's going to do nothing to amend a constitutional doctrine that has the support of four Supreme Court justices, uh, and of the remaining six conservatives, uh, nobody knows for sure what Amy Coney Barrett's opinion is, mm-hmm. and Roberts, is said, took a position of neutrality in 2020, but in the past, he's taken an independent state legislature approach in a different case involving redistricting in Arizona. So there are four justices, and in fact, here's how close we were. Um, And this is a little outside of the ECA, but it's important to Mm -hmm. understand. Mm -hmm. Um, We were so close because Alito had ordered that Pennsylvania's uh, votes that arrived after Election Day Mm -hmm. be segregated and counted either separately, you know, like Mm -hmm. that. Luckily, the number of those ballots is only 10,000, and the margin was around 80,000. Mm-hmm. But the Supreme Court had already acted to toss out those late arriving yeah. votes, then that could have decided the election right there. So that's the way the uh, Republicans want to go. So we can amend the ECA all we want, but I just want to make sure everybody understands that pathway is still wide open.
1: And I'm glad you reminded me of that. I forgot about that. That was sort of the one case that uh, Republicans actually did win when he said, okay, yeah, w- it's unclear whether votes should be counted if they were sent before Election Day, but arrive after Election Day in Pennsylvania. So for now, just go ahead and segregate those in case there's any question about it later. It turns out to not be a question but it certainly could have been and it could have been part of all of this but what you're saying Paul Leto is that even if they they do restructure the ECA and it really is a mess if you've ever tried to read any part of this law uh, you know I'm not an attorney so maybe an attorney gets it more clearly but I I, it's really confusing but what you're saying is that even if the ECA is uh, uh, rethought and 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 You know, the impossible happens where Republicans and Democrats get together on this and try to rewrite the law that even at that point, the Supreme Court could come in and say, hey, what you've written in the ECA does not agree with what the Constitution says. And that takes priority. That's correct. Okay, well, Well, that's trouble. Yeah, uh, that's (laughs) that's troubling. Um, Now, you were one of uh, a handful of folks, Paul, trying to warn as loudly as possible about what could happen uh, on on January 6th, while the rest of the media was, you know, concerned about who would be the next HUD secretary and, and so forth. The argument was made by the Trumpers at the time that it all came down to the vice president, that the Constitution says it's up to the vice president that he or now she has the right to decide which electors were and weren't legitimate all by himself or now herself. Uh, And whether that was actually constitutionally true or not, there's really nothing built into our system to prevent a vice president from either party from making that declaration. That seems dangerous. Am I right about that? And is that still essentially the case?
3: Yes, it is. It, it doesn't have to be dangerous. I mean, if Congress understood that all they're really doing is tabulating votes, just like election officials tabulate votes, mm-hmm. and their their scope is very limited, they wouldn't have these uh, disagreements about whether the vice president has a sweeping authority to do this or do that. They would realize they're clerks. But because, you know, that's not a an understanding that's out there like it ought to be, a yet another major norm of democracy, you could say, is being completely violated, and that's why there's so many, you know, holes that can be uh, manipulated in the ECA is because people are looking, how can we game the system, you know? When they write election laws, the problem with election law is that 100% of election laws are written by people who have won elections and are probably going (laughs) to face re-election. So they like to write them to help their side.
1: Well, when you say they're clerks, uh, that may be the, you know, the, the members of Congress uh, who who vote yay or nay to these being legitimate. But does the vice president actually have the ability to say, oh, I'm looking at these votes from Pennsylvania. I disagree with them. I think these should be sent back to the state for reconsideration or to the House, uh, uh, House of Representatives, because there are questions about enough states that there are not enough uh, electors to uh, you know, to, to give any uh, candidate a uh, a majority of, of the 538. I mean, could Mike Pence have done that, as a lot of folks on the right were arguing at the time?
3: Well, he could have done that. I mean, he could do anything he, he wants to, but then the question would be how would we resolve the deadlock, probably by going to a, a Supreme Court appeal, not too appetizing. So, you know, that's the core of the argument for why the ECA ought to be amended to clear up some of the questions that can be, you know, Mm and loopholes that can be exploited there.
1: So even at, uh, even though the Supreme Court could ultimately do whatever they want and overrule the ECA, uh, you would make the case that it does make sense to clean up the ECA uh, prior to 2024 or as soon as possible in any event?
3: With the understanding that you know, whenever you close a loophole, the action just moves to, to the loopholes that still exist. So, you know, amending the ECA all by itself isn't going to solve the problem because you have constitutional issues, you have issues of, you know, people being partisan when they really should be patriots and act like clerks counting ballots and that kind of thing. But, yeah, basically, you know, that, that's correct. And to, to Ginsburg's credit, I mean, one of the best things he says is now is the time. I I agree with that. Mm -hmm. The reason I agree with that is because we haven't hit the 2022 elections yet. Mm -hmm. As soon as those elections hit, then we know who controls the state legislatures in the battleground states. Then it's going to be really hard to get a Mm. semi-nonpartisan result. But when you don't know who's going to be in control in the future, that is one hopeful thing that you can get a halfway decent ECA reform out is when we're behind what's called the veil of ignorance, and we don't know who it's going to help or who it's going to hurt.
1: At the uh, heart of Ginsburg's argument, Paul Leto, and I, bet, and, and I bet you never thought you'd say the sentence uh, to Ben Ginsburg's credit, but at the heart of Ginsburg's argument, Uh, is that Republicans uh, should be concerned because Democrats now could use the very same methods if they wanted to steal an election in the future. He cites, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris, for example, now playing the role of Mike Pence in 2024. Uh, Do you share his concerns about that? Or is that really meant as a a rhetorical uh, advice here to sort of try and scare Republicans into clarifying the Electoral College Act?
3: I think it's more the more the latter. Um, Democrats have not established that they're willing to play uh, whether you want to call it hardball or mm-hmm. or cheat as much as the Republicans have. I mean, when the Democrats, you know, they could have uh, insisted on the Supreme Court nominees not being, you know, um, going through in the last year of the election, mm-hmm. use it based based on precedent. But you know, I don't think the Democrats are going to engage in those kinds of tactics. So. The more realistic scenario is when you have the Republicans can still use the independent state legislature avenue, which is constitutional. So you'd have to amend the Constitution or change the composition of the court, you know, to get a different result. Um, It would be nice to have some uh, ECA loopholes plugged because the Democrats might actually use that as defense.
1: And and I'd love to know what what you would like to see plugged in the ECA uh, Ginsburg uh, details a few of those points. But, I, you know, you mentioned again the, the state delegation doctrine, essentially, you know, where the Constitution itself says, oh, it's up to the states. I, I mean, is there anything that you could do with the ECA? that would not be subsequently uh, superseded by the Constitution? Or is that just a matter of uh, the luck of the draw of who happens to be sitting on the Supreme Court at the time, essentially?
3: Well, there are some things. I mean, like defining who the executive is, Mm -hmm. that's the tiebreaker. That would be an ECA question. That would be useful. You mean in
1: um, the states, Ben Ginsburg talks about at the states, it, it's up to the executive to certify the the electors, but there's a question of whether the executive is actually the governor of the state or the secretary of state of the state.
3: Right. So that would be an ECA question that could be uh, resolved. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and there's a few other on his list that I think uh, have some merit. Um, but, you know, the problem is, is that as soon as you start opening up the ECA for amendment, uh, even behind the veil of ignorance, you're still going to have some uh, political calculations going on. Mm -hmm. And uh, the main thing that would help on there is, is, you know, an attitude of uh, civic responsibility to understand that unless the election gets kicked over to the House, the senators and the representatives are there as witnesses to a vote count, and that's about it.
1: Well, that's the well. well surely they—you uh, don't disagree with their ability to uh, to object, right? Now it takes one member of the House, one member of the Senate to object to any state. Surely we need those some sort of provision uh, to object. Uh, do we not? Uh, in the in the oh, ECI? absolutely,
3: because you can have fake fraud. As uh-huh. We all saw that. You can also have real fraud. So there does need to be an, uh, an ability to object and have a debate. Um, although, ultimately, the fairness of that resolution, since it's going to un- involve a political vote, depends on, you know, how civically responsible <laughs> the politicians are. And we're at a low point in our country with, when it comes to that. You
1: yeah. think? Uh, yeah. <laughs> there's uh, One of the points that uh, Ginsburg makes is, is about the threshold for objecting to the electors, that it should be increased to more than just one member from each chamber. Your thoughts on that, Paul Leto?
3: I think there's a lot of pressure on people not to object. And uh, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with a debate per se. And um, I, I don't think it should be increased to two or more, because that's just that's a barrier to transparency. So not everybody agrees with me, but I think that, uh, you know, you can have an orderly. And we've had this in several uh, presidential elections in modern times, mm-hmm. have an orderly debate, uh, you know, on objections and they can be properly ruled up.
1: It feels like that was at a different time, though, Paul. I got to be frank. I mean, you couldn't, you know, even in 2000, when there was a legitimate reason to question those results in Florida, a very legitimate reason, if you ask me, I think Al Gore probably won that state from everything that we have learned since. And yet they could not get one single senator uh, to object back in 2000. Now, Twenty one years later, or I guess 24 years later, I could see a scenario where, you know, the the GOP has gone so far off uh, off the rails here, Paul, that, you know, pick your senator, Ted Cruz. I could see Ted Cruz objecting to every single state in 2024. That's all it would take is one Ted Cruz in the Senate Your argument is that's okay, that's fine. We just slog through uh, the debate for each hour, you know, for each uh, state, two hours or whatever it is, and and just work our way through it, leave the threshold for challenge that low? Well,
3: I think Ted Cruz would pay a pretty high price uh, for doing that. I think he'd Uh,
1: make a lot of money for doing that, Paul. I think he'd pay no price at all, actually.
3: (laughs) Well, you know, if you have rules, rules can always be abused. So you're saying, yeah, we could have somebody abuse the rules. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have to <coughs> look at the necessity and, the, and, you know, the utility of rules and why rules are a good thing. Mm-hmm. And what would they, what, what's the ideal rule in the general situation? And I think the ideal rule would still be one representative and one, one senator, even mm-hmm. though, uh, you know, it can, it can be abused.
1: The Electoral College Act has been disputed since its creation, uh, and and which came after several close elections in the 1880s. Uh, at the time, it was criticized by a legal scholar as very confused, almost unintelligible. More recently, critics have described the ECA uh, as as having uh, invited misinterpretation. It's been called repetitious. Its central provisions seem contradictory. Well, now Ben Ginsburg uh, argues that that it would be in the best interest of the Republicans to clarify the statute. Um, and, and, and maybe this is a political question you want to stay out of. I don't know. I think that may have been true of Republicans in the past to clarify that statute, that it would have been good for them, uh, you know, back in Ginsburg's heyday in any event. But would you concur with my argument that chaos and confusion right now is the friend of the Trump I've got to call him, insurrectionist wing of the GOP at this point, and that the vagaries of both the Constitution and the ECA, frankly, are, are likely seen by them as an advantage to be exploited, Paul.
3: Yeah, I would agree, uh, basically, with that. I mean, one of the reasons, or one of the tools that I've used to successfully predict what's going to happen, is I ask myself the question, what would maximize chaos? That seems to be what happens nearly yeah. all the time, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, and you can... You know think for as long as you want about why that might be the case it can just be the dynamics of parties that are in a fight you know they just keep escalating but that's you know that's what that's what keeps happening but uh, maybe outside the scope of our conversation here but i think the one thing that will go a long way towards minimizing that would be to have transparency in our vote counts because then people can you know know for certain that it's correct uh what we have right now is kind of like having a super bowl everybody shows up on election day Super Bowl, and then the refs uh, make a huddle, Mm -hmm. and then they come out and tell us who the winners are, and everybody's supposed to accept that. Mm -hmm. You know, people don't want to accept, you know, secret vote counts. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we're not addressing that, and if we're not addressing, you know, the constitutional problem here with the independent state legislature doctrine, just... Just know that amending the ECA isn't going to solve the problem. It may help, but it won't solve
1: the problem. And, of course, I'm with you 100% on transparent vote counting. Uh, finally, Paul, uh, d- do you share the the fears now being expressed by many, certainly by us on this show, but now many other actual you know scholars and experts that the GOP is now planning to pull off uh, the coup that they were not prepared to do in 2020, and that... As Barton Gellman, for example, who also tried to warn about 2020 in advance, as he argues this week at The Atlantic, 2020 was a practice session and that Trump's next coup has already begun. Do you agree with those uh, warnings and or concerns?
3: I don't know that it's begun, but the possibilities are are definitely all there. But I think maybe what Democrats don't fully uh, give enough weight to is the fact that, you know, We have an ancient constitution that did not provide for a democratic means of selecting the president. So that feels, you know, anti-democratic and fraudulent to Democrats, but that's what the system was set up. So we, we need to amend the constitution in order to have it, you know, line up with what our reasonable expectations are for living in a modern democracy.
1: Well, maybe that'll be the conversation on uh, on this show the next time we have you on, Paul Leighton. I would love to know what changes we could actually make to the Constitution uh, to avoid some of this. Although, hell, even changing a law, changing a 130-year-old law, getting both parties, major parties, on the same page to do that right now feels like next to impossible. But. We'll keep trying, and uh, we will keep warning, especially you, will Paul Leto, uh, election law scholar and democracy activist. Uh, I got a note here. Last time you were on the show, Paul, that your uh, your, your Twitter handle, Paul underscore Leto, uh, was was locked. Is that? Are you still on on the Twitters
3: there? I think I'm still on Twitterverse.
1: Okay, they haven't locked you out yet. We'll work on that. All right. Paul (laughs) underscore Lato. Hey, Paul, really appreciate you joining us today. And I sort of look forward to doing it again in the near future.
3: (laughs) Thank you very much, Brad. You
1: bet. Thank you. Okay. uh, Speaking of warnings ignored, Desi Doyen joins us next for the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is the Bradcast. Hey does. Yep. Uh, what do you know? It's, it's, it's unlike me, but I'm running late.
2: <laughs> yes, I know.
1: So we better get to it. Our latest green news report.
2: If global emissions aren't curbed, we could be looking at low to no snow at all in the western U.S. Climate change is changing western U.S. forests and altering mountain snowpack. A harsh reminder that wildfire season is not over in Montana. December heatwave breaks records, sparks unusual late season fires. Plus, Shell has scrapped plans to develop the Cambo oil field. Oil giant ditches controversial drilling project in Scotland. All of those
1: controversies and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis and snarky comment. He got us to energy independence. We, We didn't import a single barrel of oil from Saudi Arabia. Actually, Sean Hannity... Barack Obama got us to energy independence, and Donald Trump imported a half a million barrels from Saudi Arabia. But, you know, it's Fox News. You're Sean Hannity. Who cares about the truth? This is your Green News Report.
2: Gonna soak up the sun.
1: Okay, Desi Doyen, oil prices down, then up, then down. Now they're back up again? (laughs) Yes.
2: Volatile global oil prices spiked further on Monday after Saudi Arabia announced plans to boost the price of its crude oil exports, but not the production. Now, a new analysis finds that 24 oil majors, including Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, are also profiting wildly by squeezing more out of consumers with higher prices. The analysis by Accountability U.S. finds that this year alone The 24 largest oil companies combined netted more than one hundred seventy billion dollars in profits. That's one hundred seventy billion in just the first nine months of this year and shoveled the money to shareholders instead of investing in boosting production.
1: That's also called profiteering. And the FTC is looking into it. Go get them.
2: Gas prices in the U.S. are now at a seven year high. Meanwhile, an unusual early December heat wave last week broke new records. Canada set a new all-time high national temperature record for the month of December. And four U.S. states, Montana, North Dakota, Washington, and Wyoming, also set new all-time heat records for the month of December. In some areas, temperatures were a whopping 30 to 40 degrees above normal, Mm. reaching into the 70s in montana which has seen almost no snow this year the record high temperatures and high winds sparked a series of unusual december prairie fires one that tragically destroyed at least two dozen homes and businesses in the tiny farming town of denton mm. montana's lewis and clark national forest saw eight new fires erupt over just the last two weeks here's public affairs officer chiara cipriano of the national forest service in an interview with ktvh and helena <laughs> You know, truly a fire, you're no longer a fire season contained, you know, by the end of October. We base our our fire seasons on, you know, kind of an expected end date of October. And so, you know, our fire personnel are very fatigued at this point.
1: There is no end date anymore.
2: Climate scientist Kathy Whitlock of Montana State University told AP that right now in Montana, quote, temperatures are exceeding what we have seen for the last 11,000 years.
1: In Montana, in December.
2: Climate change is also coming for Christmas trees in the U.S. A new Oregon State University study found that across the Pacific Northwest, about 70 percent of noble fir seedlings died over the summer due to drought, plus that unprecedented deadly climate change-driven heat wave in June. The study forecasts a Christmas tree shortage in about eight years. Well,
1: there's your war on Christmas. Climate change has a war on Christmas.
2: And a long-term prognosis for forests is also troubling. A University of Montana study finds that across large swaths of the western U.S., forests are shifting to scrublands dominated by grass and shrubs. That's because wildfires and rising summer temperatures are wiping out seedlings of pine and douglas fir trees, with temperatures high enough to cook the young trees before they can develop protective bark. That is making it much harder for forests to regenerate rate after fires another study warns that if governments fail to reduce emissions that cause global warming the snowpack in western forests could disappear in the next 20 to 30 years the study projects that all mountain states in the u.s could be snowless for years at a time
1: and if we are snowless we're also waterless for years at a time
2: exactly But some good news. Oil giant Shell has announced that it is scrapping plans to invest in the development of the Cambo oil field, a controversial oil project in the North Sea off the coast of Scotland. Shell said the project is no longer economical, putting the future of the entire project in doubt. On the same day, Scotland First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, who opposes the Cambo oil field project, announced that the UK offshore wind sector is building two huge new turbine fields factories in scotland telling sky news my view is absolutely anchored in the determination to transition those who currently work in oil and gas into other green clean jobs for the future
1: let's see if we can get her to come on over here to the u.s and do the same thing (laughs) for much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com i'm brad friedman
2: and i'm desi doyan
1: and this has been your Green News Report.
3: I bet I may as well try
0: and catch the wind.
3: Yeah.
1: No kidding. Yeah. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. My yep. thanks to our producer. Desiree, as well as my guest today, election law scholar Paul Leto, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program or you just like to hear it again and run through all the fine memories all <laughs> over, you can do that by stopping by Bradblog.com and downloading it for free there. But hey, while you're there, please hit one of those donate buttons or just go straight to Bradblog.com slash donate. To keep us in mind for your end-of-year giving, we could use all the help you can offer. Thank you. Drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at TheBradBlog. I'll see you there until we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.
3: I bet I may as well try